0: LAist Studios. Hey, you're listening to Imperfect Paradise, the show about hidden worlds and messy realities. I'm Antonia Cerejito. If you listen to our series, Nuri and the Secret Tapes, you know that homelessness is an issue that is hotly contested in our city government. As we continue running How to LA series on how homelessness is treated here in the city, I'm really grateful for my colleagues here at LAist who are doing the hard work of tracking how local government programs are actually impacting the unhoused community. We'll be hearing from Council Members Kevin DeLeon, Nithya Rahman, and Mayor Karen Bass, reflecting on their work and what they see as challenges moving forward. And we'll also continue to hear from unhoused folks themselves. And just a heads up, this episode includes some heavy themes including sexual assault, substance abuse, suicide, and death host Brian De Los Santos and producer Evan Jacoby take it from here.
2: From LAS Studios, this is How to LA. I'm your host, Brian De Los Santos.
3: And I'm Evan Jacoby, a producer on the show. This episode is parts three and four of our series on mutual aid volunteers in Los Angeles. If you like your stories in the right order, then take a listen to parts 1 and two first. Okay, now that you're back, here's the spark note so far. We're asking three main questions in this series. First, what do mutual aid groups actually do for unhoused communities in LA? Second, if mutual aid is acting like a band-aid solution to cover service gaps in immediate term needs, where are these service gaps coming from, and what would it take for that band-aid solution to be less necessary? And third, what kinds of things can we all do to help our unhoused neighbors? Last week, we spoke to city leaders about their efforts
2: to provide unhoused communities with things like clean water and showers or health and hygiene services.
4: My office is really proud of the refreshed spots where folks can take a shower, fill up their jugs with fresh drinking water.
2: We also heard from people experiencing homelessness and the volunteers who work with them about their experiences with these city services.
5: It's a great asset to the homeless. But some of these people are like me. I don't do people, groups of people well. That mental thing can hold them back from many benefits.
2: The common thread was that while steps are being made, there's a lot of basic, immediate-term needs that are still not being met by government agencies.
5: I'm fortunate enough and blessed enough to have a fire hydrant. That's how I survive.
2: When it comes to things like water or harm reduction supplies or other basic things like batteries, clean socks, or spare tents, a lot of those needs tend to be covered by volunteers and mutual aid groups.
5: Well, yeah, and I got two dogs too.
6: They save lives, and that's a big deal. That's really hard to say in like homeless communities.
3: For the tens of thousands of Angelinos experiencing unsheltered homelessness, Life can be extremely dangerous, and more than 2,000 unhoused people die every year across LA County.
4: The mutual aid groups that go out and meet basic needs, I think that that's a wonderful thing. The role of the city needs to be helping people get off the street and into housing.
3: Both the LA council members we spoke to and the mayor all said their main efforts have been focused on temporary or interim housing. The idea being that it would be easier for unhoused people to access other services like regular supply of water if they can at least get off the streets.
4: I think a motel room is better than somebody being in the street and possibly raped or killed.
2: So today, we're continuing to explore the answer to our second question. What would it take for the mutual aid band-aid to be less necessary for unhoused people in Los Angeles? If the city's solution to cover service gaps is to build interim housing programs, what do those programs look like? And what are the experiences of the people who end up living there? Part 3. Betting on a Motel
6: I walked in and literally that was the first time I felt safety and peace and a sense of this is the beginning of the rest of my life.
3: This is a video shared by LA Mayor Karen Bass. That's Nono talking, one of the unhoused people we met back in episode one. When we spoke in August, she'd been living under the 405 freeway for several years. After we finished our reporting for that episode, the encampment where Nono lived got swept again. These sweeps, where everyone and their belongings are removed from the area, aren't uncommon. Usually, people move right back after the sidewalk is hosed down. But this time, the sidewalk was completely fenced off. It's still fenced off. And many of the residents got a voucher to move into different motels across the city. This was Mayor Bass's Inside Safe program in action. More on the specifics of that program in just a bit. For years, the people in this encampment were living in a state of limbo, relying on mutual aid groups to provide life or death services like Narcan, new tents, fresh water, all the while waiting on the city's promise of a longer-term solution.
6: This is finally the catapult that I've been waiting for, believing in, dreaming of. And it's it's all because because of this project.
3: In the video, Nono's sitting on the foot of her bed in her new motel room. She's wearing a bandana with Rastafari colors, and you could see a shark tooth necklace between the collar of her blouse. She looks happy, if a bit overwhelmed. We'll return to Nono's story
2: and stories from other people living in temporary housing programs a little later in the episode. But before we get to those experiences, I wanna take some time to talk about what these programs actually look like throughout the city. Interim housing comes in a lot of shapes and sizes, and programs offered by the city can vary in availability by council district. Inside Safe is the mayor's flagship program, and by far, the largest. It's also the city's biggest response in terms of dollars spent. According to our analysis of data released by the city, these vouchers cost about $8,000 per unit per month, including additional costs like insurance. People are promised three meals per day, in addition to things like hygiene services and the overdose prevention resource, Narcan. The goal of the program is to offer a safer alternative to the street while people wait for permanent housing. There's other city programs that share this goal, like the tiny home village concept. Communities of little houses with a stripped down eight by eight foot room and two small beds each. The largest of these villages is the Arroyo Seco Tiny Home Village near Highland Park in Council District 14. We spoke to council member Kevin DeLeon, the representative for that district.
4: They can have their own locked door for their own personal safety, their own HVAC system. So when it gets hot, they can put on the air conditioner. When it gets really, really cold, they can put on that heater. Three meals a day, access to bathrooms and showers.
2: It hasn't worked for everyone. People can get kicked out if they don't follow rules like no drugs or alcohol inside the gate, there's a nightly curfew, Bathrooms are communal.
4: Let me say this. It's not perfect. It's not meant to be the panacea. But it's one huge proactive step forward for those who've been suffering greatly. There's criticism that's abundant on tiny homes. Don't let the perfect in the way of the good.
2: There's 117 units in this tiny home village. And there's 10 more villages throughout the city. Of course, like we mentioned in episode 2, the city is not the only player here. Los Angeles County is responsible for providing mental health services, as well as other public health resources. But they spend a lot of money and time on housing, too. Then there's L.A.S.A., the Los Angeles Homelessness Authority. It's a joint agency that sits between LA City and the county. When we spoke to Paul Rubenstein, L.A.S.A.'s deputy chief external relations officer, He told us about their role in all of this.
7: A big part of what LASA does is pass funds through to service providers, organizations that um, provide services on behalf of different levels of government. We take grants from the federal government, from the state government, from the city government, from the county government, and then we put those funds out to non-profit groups that provide the bulk of the homeless services in our system. The outreach work, the work that helps people find apartments, the work that helps people stay in apartments.
2: So there's a lot of housing programs being pushed forward by the city, some by the county, and some supported by funding from Lhasa. But let's actually think through some of these numbers here. With tens of thousands of Angelinos experiencing unsheltered homelessness, and with less than half of them currently having access to one of these temporary housing programs, it's easy to see why so many unhoused people still rely on mutual aid groups for services.
1: Yeah, so Los Angeles only has a third of the shelter beds it needs for its homeless population.
3: This is Councilmember Nithya Rahman, representative for Council District 4.
1: I always compare to New York City, which through a court-mandated effort from the 80s has had to have the number of shelter beds that it needed for its entire homeless population. So they actually have more unhoused people in New York than the county of Los Angeles, but only a couple of thousand out of that 80,000 or so who are living on the streets in New York. The reason why homelessness in Los Angeles looks the way that it does, the reason why we have so many tents, so many tarps, so many people in RVs here on our city streets is because we don't have those shelter beds. And as a result, we have the astounding statistic that more people succumb to extreme weather conditions on the streets of Los Angeles than they do in the city of New York. That is a policy Outcome that is a result of the fact that we have not invested in shelter in the way that we needed to here in LA.
3: Like we mentioned in episode two, Council Member Raman says focusing the city's efforts on those investments in shelter comes at the cost of providing other interim services.
1: We had to choose between providing those services and organizing those efforts and trying to find money to pay for them and actually looking for housing for people where they could access those services, you know, in the context of a motel or a hotel room or a shelter site of some kind.
3: So we know there isn't enough interim housing, but what about the people who do get into one of these programs? Well, for some people, it does seem like a good waiting room while they wait for permanent housing. But others have reported getting as few as one meal per day. Other people have had difficulty cooperating with no visitor rules while still getting the psychiatric care they need. To paraphrase the mayor, service access falls far short of what was promised.
4: We've learned about a lot of obstacles and we've been dealing with each obstacle that we learn mistakes are made along the way. We're learning about gaps and things that are woefully inadequate like services. The other uh, gap is the whole process that takes too long to go from interim housing to permanent, which is why so few people have moved into permanent housing.
3: That bottleneck the mayor is referring to might explain why the program has a fairly low retention rate. About one in six people choose to leave the program, according to reporting from LAist. One of the big things Merit Bass has run into is the lack of long-term housing for people. This is Nick Gerda, LAS unhoused communities reporter. She seemed to really expect that there would be a lot more available for people to transition from the motels and inside safe to this longer term housing. But there's a bottleneck. Only a couple hundred people have been able to move on to permanent housing. And so the motels are largely full, and that means there's much less capacity for people to move off the streets into the motels. and So she's running into this structural issue of a lack of uh, affordable housing options for people. <music>
4: which we had a much better situation. I don't think that moving people into motels, number one is financially sustainable. I would like a much better system of interim housing, but I was not going to accept the idea that while we're doing this stuff, that people have to die on the street. I think a motel room is better than somebody being in the street and possibly raped or killed. Unhoused people get killed on the streets every single day. To me, that is an emergency, and I'm gonna pull out all whatever in order to get people housed and not have them languish on the streets.
3: Mayor Bass acknowledges this program is far from perfect service access can be limited, and a bottleneck is preventing people from quickly moving from an inside safe motel into permanent housing. But apart from the program's
2: challenges, the mayor's point is that it's a safer alternative to living unsheltered on the street. After a break, we go to an inside safe motel with mutual aid volunteers to understand what this program is actually like on an individual, personal, Level.
6: The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact based journalism. so Inside Safe came to move people into interim shelter or motel rooms until permanent housing comes about.
3: This is Dindi.
6: Dindi Kitonga, I'm the founder of Puma Palms and House Mutual Aid.
3: Puma provides harm reduction resources like clean needles and Narcan to unhoused people in the Palms neighborhood. They also supply other things like food and tents. One of the encampments they used to visit was the one we featured in episode one, under the 405 freeway. But like we mentioned a little earlier, the area has since been cleared out and fenced off. Many of the people living there were given motel vouchers and relocated.
6: I'll actually start by um, just saying rest in peace to one of our friends from that community who died in early November. Her name was Kelly Rushton, and she died after that sweep. It's not clear to us that she made it to a motel, but what we do know is um, she was having a, a serious episode on the street, and whatever happened next, she had many health issues, um, is not clear to us. Kelly died alone, and she had a community, and that community doesn't exist anymore. What exists there is some kind of fence
3: Dindy says that one of the big challenges doing mutual aid work with people in these motels is the different motels. Communities can be broken up into different locations that are miles apart and the enforcement of rules and availability of services can be different too.
6: So what happened with our community is people ended up in three motels. One is off of the 90, so still far away if you consider if you don't have a car. And then a bunch of other people were moved to South LA. You just have people with uh, very few services, loss of their community and what have you.
3: Puma is still providing harm reduction supplies on Mondays. But now that people from that encampment are living in these different motels, they've had to change their distribution strategy. So far, they've been splitting their evening between two motels in Palms. Absolutely. Right. At a quarter to six, outside a motel on Sepulveda, Dindi and some other volunteers are getting everything set up. Glass pipes, Narcan, toothbrushes, bottled water, burritos. It's their second stop of the evening.
5: burrito, yeah, the best burrito.
3: I'm here to talk to Nono again. Shortly after we met in August, she was given a voucher for a room at this motel. She's been living here for a few months now. One person's experience won't paint a complete picture of the Inside Safe program. There's dozens of motels across the city and thousands of people living inside of them. The Inside Safe Motels are independent contractors, and people's experiences can vary depending on the motel they're relocated to. But this evening, at this motel, people in the Inside Safe program are getting the resources they need from volunteers on the sidewalk.
6: We gave it a few weeks before we started coming around. What brought us is people are letting us know that They don't have adequate food, they don't have harm reduction services. They are um, reviving each other using the Narcan that they have and also defying the rules of the motel which say that you cannot have visitors even if that visitor is your motel mate, meaning someone who lives next door to you.
3: Is that particular to this motel? Um,
6: Yes, this is particular to this particular site, this particular motel.
5: Your family can't visit. You know, you can't have people that maybe your therapist. They're not felons. These are grown people. What are you trying to do, isolate them?
3: As I'm waiting on the sidewalk for Nono, I meet a man who lives across the street from the motel in his tent, near an entrance to Biona Creek.
5: My name's Ivory. Ivory Michaels.
3: Ivory is one of the people who's left inside safe. He's friends with a lot of the people living in this motel, including Nono.
5: You know, there's Nono. Hi. I knocked on her door. I went like this take a step over. She flipped out. Can't have any visitors. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah,
6: yeah. I'm under so much stress because of the security situation over here. It's just ridiculous. They kicked my parents out. They kicked my parents out. What if they're all I had? Well, they are all, I don't even have them. And that was like the one time I seen them in ages. And you know.
3: Nono asked if we could stop recording. She said she's been so exhausted and stressed that she doesn't feel confident telling her story right now. But she told me she came into this program with really high hopes. In the video shared by Mayor Bass's office, she says she's excited to finally experience peace and safety. But so far, she hasn't had that experience yet. She says her doctor is concerned by her extreme weight loss and she actually got beat up on the sidewalk in front of the motel as someone stole her bike and wallet. And she says that no visitors rule makes her feel like she doesn't have any autonomy over her life anymore. I asked Ivory how he felt about that.
5: How do you not know it's not okay to say you can't have any visitors? What if these people commit suicide? Because you can't have any visitors and there's no one to talk to.
3: The way rules are enforced in these interim housing programs has been a sore point for some of the people living there for a long time, dating back at least to the height of the pandemic, when unhoused people were moved into hotels and motels to prevent the spread of COVID.
5: And then, you know, like they say, you can only take two bags. That's their life. You're just gonna have to pack up your most sentimental values, regardless if all of it's sentimental.
3: We mentioned Ivory had been through Inside Safe before. Before he started living across the street from this motel, he had a room at a different inside safe location. But he says his voucher got revoked after an argument with management.
5: They terminated my voucher because I asked for clean linens. And they only want to give you clean linens on alternate days. Just because I asked, they thought I was being aggressive. I mean, they just said, you know, I was I was defiant and you're right, I am defiant. I'm 53 years old. I shouldn't have limitations brought on me. You know, and it's it's angersome.
3: Presented with the options of living with those limitations or living in his tent, Ivory says he chose the tent.
5: I'm happy to go back to the streets, because I can be happy on the streets wherever, but you're not gonna tell me what I'm gonna do on a daily basis. If you're gonna get these motel vouchers, Get the motel vouchers, but don't give it with conditions. You can't have no visitors. See, they came to us, the unhoused. We didn't go to them. We weren't saying, hey, we'll do whatever it takes. You know what I mean? We'll sign whatever.
6: There's this trope that when people refuse something, that they are service resistant.
3: This is Dindi again.
6: The way this is framed is it's as if proper outreach has been done. You have you have relationships with people, things that people want are being offered. They're being offered that they're not far away or that they meet the goals and they don't. I understand that no one individual or no one program or no one approach is actually at the heart or the problem of what's going on here because the social problems really are Poverty, gendered violence, uh, structural racism, gentrification. They are the big isms. So, yes, I absolutely understand how and why the mayor is overwhelmed. They underestimated the scale and under-theorized what's going on here. Of course, a bunch of people want to be indoors. People want actual safety, want actual autonomy over their lives, want harm reduction and or treatment services, want many things that this solution doesn't offer.
3: There are still a lot of unanswered questions here about what the right solutions are. We're not trying to answer every question regarding homelessness in this series. We're just trying to understand this very simple thing. What are these mutual aid volunteers providing for unhoused people throughout LA, and why is it so necessary? Local government agencies are doing some things to provide services to people. But those services don't match one-to-one with people's needs. You've got people like Nono, who seem pretty relieved at first to be in a motel after all this time living on the street. But then she's got these restrictions that are placed on her and all the stress that comes with that. You also have people who leave the Inside Safe program because it's either pulled them too far away from community or they don't have service access that they were hoping for.
2: Right. And then you have programs like the Refresh Spot and Skid Row, where unhoused people in that area can come take a shower or fill up their water 24-7. But you still have people who don't or really, honestly, can't use that service because of different reasons. So even going back to what we said earlier in the series that unhoused communities are not a monolith, people have different needs and need different resources. And so solutions are also going to be different for everybody as well.
3: It reminds me of something Hawk said to us when we were in Skid Row. He's a veteran who relies on a fire hydrant for his water. Is it really a good solution if the people you're providing it to choose not to use it or aren't able to?
5: If you're gonna help somebody, find out what the problem is, find out. If there's a medical problem, then try to get them some medical help. If there's a drug problem, get them some drug help. Or open up a damn place where they can. Don't let somebody have to push you into doing it because it's politics. Do it because that's what you want to do.
2: After a break, we finally come to our third question for this series. What kinds of things can we all do to help unhouse people living in our communities? That's in part four. Stick around. Welcome back to Imperfect Paradise with How to L.A. series on
3: mutual aid volunteers. I'm Brian Santos, And I'm Evan Jacoby. We are finally at our last question for this series. Given everything we've heard so far, what kinds of things can we all do to help unhoused people in our communities?
2: Part 4. Being a better neighbor. To recap, there are dozens of mutual aid groups throughout the city. Some of them are nonprofits, some of them are unofficial groups of volunteers, some people use their own money, some people rely on donations from the public, some people get refunded by government programs,
3: and some do all three. We've been talking about this for a long time. Four weeks in the podcast feed, more like two and a half, three months from a reporting side. So today is going to be a bit of a debrief. Brian, I wanted to actually start something you mentioned to me and Dindy a couple of weeks ago was that there was somebody who was living on your street, um, sort of at the end, like where it dead ends. And you had a conversation with the person that you'd never had before. Can you tell me about that?
2: Yeah, actually, there's been unhoused folks uh, in different places in my area there's a cul-de-sac at the end of the street and there are people living in their cars. And to be honest, I was didn't feel quite safe because there were always, you know, whether it's loud music or loitering, trash, and just things seemed busy and a lot of visitors would come by. And I just didn't know who they were, honestly. And I didn't feel so safe walking my small dogs at night sometimes. And then recently, this one other neighbor moved in into... Um, Un callejón? How do you say callejón. An alley. Uh-huh. Um, and I use that alley to go to the supermarket around the corner. Um, this is an older gentleman. I see him, you know, gathering things, also cleaning up things in the alley. And as we started reporting this series out, going to Skid Row, interviewing people in their tents or in their communities... One day I finally just said hello and asked him about his day and he was very friendly and I started to think about more ways to connect with our unhoused neighbors. People literally living on the street I live on and even this person who had just moved into the alley next to me.
3: I think it's really easy though like at first you were like a little annoyed or I felt a little unsafe maybe. Oh
2: yeah when I had just moved in.
3: Yeah and I think that's Honestly, it's totally fair, because the the unfortunate reality of the situation is that a lot of, there are a lot of people who live unhoused in Los Angeles. We're talking about tens of thousands of people. Some of those people are dangerous to themselves, to other people. That is part of this experience, as part of this story. And, you know, frankly, nobody knows that more than other unhoused people who are Often the victim of violence uh, in in those kinds of situations, but you know, I don't think that you're a bad person for feeling fearful. I think it's a really good thing, though, that it inspired you to kind of want to learn more about who they are, and I think that that's a really good way of bridging that gap. When you're afraid of something, is to just try to understand it better. And so, saying hi, I live here. My name's Brian. Um, you know, what's your name is like such a good way to ease that kind of tension. I think, you know, not a hundred percent of the time, but sometimes, and and it sounds like in your case.
2: Yeah. All right, Evan, I want to ask you, you know, you came up with this idea about mutual aid groups. And then I think as you started reporting out, you saw how messy it is to deal with the crisis of homelessness in LA There's so many facets and there are many plans involved here to tackle this issue. What did you learn as a reporter on this project?
3: You know, it's funny because that (laughs) breadth of the problem that you're talking about was very much... it kept snowballing. Everybody that we talked to who either currently or previously had experienced homelessness really had completely different reasons for it and needed different things and you know we we say homelessness is not a monolith we say that right at the end of episode one but like you could know that and still be kind of surprised by it and it it really felt like every single story every person that we met um had a completely different experience of this and I guess that really also just complicates things so much for anyone who's an official capacity like a government person who is trying to take on this crisis. It's really hard to deal with it in broad strokes when the solution that you put forth might be perfect for person one and terrible for person two and person three never even hears about it.
2: As you talk about this idea of understanding a little bit of how government officials deal with things and and think about things, I'm also very reminded that homelessness is a health and humanitarian crisis. It's not necessarily just financial infrastructure. It's a lot to do with the personal needs of one person. Mm -hmm. And the folks who volunteer at Water Drop LA also have their own stories of why they do it. Like Arya, who leads uh, Water Drop Elaine Skid Row. That's after the break.
0: Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however, you cha-ching. grow with shopify sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash paradise all lowercase go to shopify.com slash paradise now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash paradise as a farmer son from a desert region in california jb hamby thinks a lot
3: about water Throughout our reporting, we asked our sources what they felt is the ideal relationship between mutual aid work and government services.
8: The ideal, of course, would be that we have a strong working relationship with the council district.
3: Up first is Aria Catano. She's the founder of Water Drop LA, a group we profile in episode one. They go to Skid Row every Sunday with about 2,500 gallons of water and distribute them across the entire neighborhood.
8: We do prefer to work with them rather than be adversarial because at the end of the day, they have the resources and we are happy to help them figure out how to allocate those resources. We want council members to know that we are there to help help them understand what they can do to better address people's needs. However, it shouldn't be necessary. That shouldn't be a stilt that the government relies on. At the end of the day, you know, these are a lot of students. They are young people who are trying to work towards their own futures as well. And so to put that burden of providing a city service, what should be a city service, which is providing water, right, um, it, it's really sad. I have a lot of hope for my generation because I, I think that we really do see the holes in our government system, we see the holes in um, our current leaders and we want to fix them, we want to patch them up. And so that gives me hope but it's also very sad to me because at the end of the day we should not be accepting this as you know, the status quo, we shouldn't be accepting this period.
3: We also asked this question to Councilmember Nithya Raman. Like we mentioned in episode two, she has a background in mutual aid and she founded the nonprofit SELA Neighborhood Homeless Coalition.
1: Even if the government were able to do better in terms of providing basic services like water access or food access to people who are experiencing homelessness, I think there is a really important role that mutual aid groups play or volunteer groups play in this ecosystem. And one of the things that was kind of transformative about my work at Cela was that when people came to volunteer, their approaches to homelessness would change. When they came in and they engaged with someone who was experiencing homelessness, they got to know them over time. It helped to break down some of those myths around service resistance it also helped to make the volunteers into advocates themselves for policy solutions that really worked. I think that spirit of volunteerism was community taking care of itself, but it's also a way of thinking about how we care for one another that can be transformative for government.
7: It is a very dynamic interplay between government agencies and mutual aid and and ideally they can be complementary.
3: This is Professor Ben Henwood. He's the director for the Center of Homelessness, Housing and Health Equity Research at USC. He said that aside from having less bureaucracy to deal with, the main benefit mutual aid groups have is trust.
7: If you're talking about groups that incorporate people with lived experience, they generally are able to identify the gap that they're trying to, to fill and are able to, to do that. Where I think government sometimes the promises that have been made in the past have not met expectations. And so issues of like just basic trust that the offer that people are hearing about, you know, what they can access, they they may not believe. And I think that's something that if you you've lived it and you've experienced it and you're sensitive to it. You understand that this is an engagement process that might take time, but if you're kind of designing this on paper or you haven't experienced that, you might just write somebody off and say, well, I asked them and they said no. So that's sort of the case close end the story.
3: Professor Henwood said that a lot of mutual aid groups have more of a peer perspective, whether from people who are formally unhoused or just people who have one-on-one face-to-face relationships with unhoused people. And that peer perspective can make it a lot easier to offer certain services. Of course, there are a lot of services that are still really difficult for mutual aid groups to provide. When we talked to mutual aid volunteers, we asked them what some of the hardest parts are about doing volunteer work in unhoused communities.
6: This year alone, I can think of five or six people who I knew very well um, who died in Los Angeles on the streets. But if I extend that to people who knew people, yeah, the average is, is close to six a day.
3: Here's Dindi Kitanga, the founder of one of the other mutual aid groups we profile in the series, Palm's Unhoused Mutual Aid, or PUMA.
6: Part of mutual aid, and I'm sorry to get bleak, is We've been made into reluctant funeral directors and I can't tell you how many vigils or strange little let's get together and mourn together which was something um, when we started Puma I didn't realize that that would be a regular thing that we do. What I will say about people who are curious about what to do and care and don't know how to get involved, I always just say kind of get to know your neighbors. It doesn't need to be on a huge scale, but if there's just one individual who kind of lives close to you and you can tell that they have um, that they're in-house where they just simple, respectful, mutual conversation is helpful and you'll start to get to understand not only the bigger structural issues, but actually the individual issues and concerns that person has and how and why it is that they live on your particular street. So I just encourage you, like, just get to know one person and then you'll know a bunch of people.
2: Something something that impacted me also in this reporting was people just being honest about the homelessness crisis and how I feel like at least I grew up with it. Like I I grew up knowing about Skid Row and actually going to Skid Row to do some volunteer work through church. I feel like my LA is the epicenter of homelessness. Do you feel like you can imagine an LA, a city, our city, because you grew up here too, as a place without homelessness at all?
3: I just wanna m- unpack that for a second. Cause <laughs> so you're saying like the way that you have experienced Los Angeles since childhood, it's been tied to the existence of homelessness. It's been so pervasive that that's always been kind of somewhere on the like back burner of your LA. Of course. Yeah. Um, you know, getting off the freeway, you always see somebody with a sign that says, I'm hungry, um, spending time downtown, you always will walk by, drive by, or bus by somebody who's in a tent or whatever. Like, it's very baked into, I think, our understanding of what LA is, which is probably like a psychological factor Mm. that makes it harder to combat (laughs) Mm. because it's like if you're going into this with the understanding that that's just how things are it probably has an impact on your sense of urgency if we've always had a skid row and you know there's been tents on your street since you your first memories as a kid and now you're in your 40s why does this need to be solved tomorrow (laughs) you know but um, no, I don't know if I've ever imagined an LA without homelessness, and I think that's kind of sad. Uh, I don't really know what to do with that information, or it's not a very good answer to your question. But
2: do you feel like now that you've done this reporting, you see how like maybe yes, government officials, mutual aid groups, nonprofits other government agencies, and maybe even us Angelenos who live here, who work here, Hmm. have to own a little bit of this crisis?
3: I think it's really easy to feel kind of hopeless. Um, I've experienced that. I think a lot of people that we've talked to throughout this reporting have experienced that. Like, I was thinking about the other day I was walking in my neighborhood near Pan Pacific Park. There's a man who lives uh, in front of the library there. And when I passed him, you know, he asked if I had any cash and I didn't, but I offered to get him a snack. I went to the 7-Eleven that's at the end of the block. Um, I think I got him like a sandwich and a Coke or something like that. You know, nothing major, but I'm thinking in my head like, oh, I'm doing a nice thing for somebody. Mm -hmm. On the way to the 7-Eleven, I passed another woman who was unhoused. After I bought the stuff, I passed another man who was unhoused. I didn't give either of them a sandwich or a Coke. And when I gave, you know, even to this guy, it's like the next day he was still there and he's still hungry. And so it feels sometimes you're throwing little drops in the bucket, fighting this giant fire that's all around us. And it, and it, (laughs) it can feel like you're not really able to do anything. And I think that's one of the things that's so inspiring maybe about these mutual aid people is... I guess power of numbers alone, or, or maybe the power of consistency, but they're getting together at the same time and day every week, and they're going out and they're distributing stuff. And like the Water Drop LA people, they cover literally the entirety of Skid Row. That's four square miles and like, what, like twenty five hundred people. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know that's if you took one of those people, it's okay that one person maybe gave a few gallons of water out, but that's like twenty five hundred gallons of water a week when you look at it, you know, as a group. I think one of the other big takeaways from the government side, you know, when we talk to people like Aria, some of the other volunteers, a lot of them really wanted to have like more opportunities for community input when, you know, the city government or Lhasa or the county have funding for a new project, you know, doing that community outreach, talking to unhoused people or Volunteers who may work with them, neighbors who might be housed who live in the same community. When we talked to Nick Gerda, our unhoused communities reporter at LAist, he was saying, you know, that's kind of not an approach that's historically been very involved. But he also said that it's something that is being introduced more and more. And I think that's like, not something I was really expecting to hear when we went into this. But I think it is a big piece of, like, hopefulness for future solutions.
2: And if you want to get involved, you listener listening to Harole, mutual aid resources are in the show notes. Or if you see someone who looks like they need help and you want to help them, try asking them what they need. Start off with one question and maybe your name. My name's Calvin Alvarez. I'm a volunteer here with WaterDrop. One of the most meaningful parts about WaterDrop for me is just that everyone here are people who will give their time on a Sunday to look out for community members, to look out for our homies who have unfortunately been disenfranchised by the system, who are underserved, and this is a way where we can give back and we can help out each other.
5: My name's Ivory. Ivory Michaels.
3: How long have you been living unhoused?
5: I'd say about five years. My mom used to make me feed the homeless on Skid Row when I was 11 years old on Thanksgiving and uh, Christmas. I was scared to death to do that the first time. And I said, Mom, I'm hungry. Can I get something to eat? And I'm thinking she's going to take me to McDonald's. And she's like, no, you're going to eat this homeless food. But where am I going to sit? She's like, you see where other people are sitting? I'm sitting down, and I'm listening to these people. One was a, a, a lawyer, now he's homeless. One was a mechanic, one was a mail carrier. You know, you don't judge a book unless you know the story.
2: Special thanks to Nick Gerda, a unhoused communities reporter for all of his guidance on this series.
3: Special thanks also to Nono, Raylan, Dwight Joseph Gaines, Hawk, Kevin Call, and Ivory Michaels, who shared their experiences with us living unhoused in Los Angeles.
2: Hot LA is hosted by me, Brian los Santos. Our series on mutual aid is produced by Evan Jacoby. Our other team members include Victoria Alejandro, Megan Botel, Monica Bushman, and Erica Washington. Our intern is Tony Morales, production support from Jens Campbell. Our executive producer is Megan Larson. We had additional editorial support for this series from Catherine Mailhouse, our director of content development, Sheena Naomi Krocmal, the vice president of podcasts at LA Studios, and Antonia Serejido. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live.
4: Hi,
1: I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round.
4: This is clearly an NPR audience. <laughs> yeah,
7: no, no, no. I think they're so smart. Just, what the hell?
1: My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.